Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Today's sponsor is my bookshop.org store and my Amazon store. I don't know if you guys even know that I have these, but you should check it out because I sell all the books that I've had on this podcast, so you can easily find them and buy them. The bookshop.org site is bookshop.org slash shop slash Zibby Owens. And the Amazon shop is amazon.com slash shop slash moms don't have time to read books. So I hope that you will check out my Amazon influencer store and my bookshop.org storefront. And the bookshop.org storefront also has all the books from my Zibby's virtual book club and some other suggested reads. So I hope you will check those both out and go shopping. Go buy some books from the podcast and support all these amazing authors. Reverend Liz Titchener is an Episcopal priest and currently serves as rector at the Episcopal Church of the Resurrection in Pleasant Hill, California. She received her Master's of Divinity at the Church Divinity School of the Pacific and a Master's of Arts in Ethics and Social Theory at the Graduate Theological Union. Liz is the author of The Night Lake, A Young Priest Maps the Topography of Grief. After experiencing the tragic death of a newborn baby and the suicide of a mother struggling with alcoholism, as a young Episcopal priest, Liz had to find faith where there seemed to be no hope and realized these terrible parts of her own life would join her in the pulpit. The Night Lake is the story of how Liz found a way through unimaginable tragedies that felt almost impossible to survive. Through her faith and dedication, Liz managed to carve out some space for the slow labor of learning to live again in grief. Welcome, Liz. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss The Night Lake. Yeah, thank you for having me. So your subtitle is A Young Priest Maps the Topography of Grief. And when I saw this whole cover and subtitle and everything, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to read that. That must be really amazing. And it was. And oh my gosh, can you please tell listeners basically what it's about, the period of time and what happened? Mm -hmm. And what made you turn your experience into a book? Sure. Well, I had been moving towards being ordained as a priest for a long time. And when it actually came to pass, when it happened, my life was a really different landscape than what I had imagined it would look like at that point. So my mom had been sick for a long time. She struggled with alcoholism for many, many years. And it was just a couple of months before I was ordained as a priest that she died. She died by suicide. It was just awful and unexpected that it would end that way. And then a few months later, I was ordained. And it was a, an unusual setup in some ways. I uh, decided to take an extra year in graduate school. So I was ordained and then was continuing that academic year studying more. And so I, I began my first call, splitting my time between a parish and a summer camp, camp and conference center. 
And my second child, a son, was born about, oh, maybe three months after I began at that parish. So I started and, you know, was sort of just getting my feet under me in this new, this new job and, and not just a new place, but my role in doing that work. You know, you, you learn everything in school, but it's pretty different when you're actually out trying to, to do the work and discover how you're going to do that work. And so I, I went on to maternity leave and then 40 days later, our son Fritz died totally suddenly, totally unexpectedly. He'd been this huge, healthy, you know, everybody said, oh, he's so big. He's a... And then all of a sudden I was the parent of a dead baby, which, you know, there are statistics, right? But I was young and I was healthy and I don't think I had ever really considered that that would be the shape of my life. And maybe especially because my mom had just died. You know, one of the things that people said to me was, wait, but, but you just went through that. How can you be going through this now? It was not even a year and a half later. So when I went back to work, it was maybe a month later after he died, I was still learning how to do this job. And there are a lot of different ways to inhabit it. It hasn't been that long, really, that women have been ordained, that it's still a, a, a job, a role that is so influenced by the many centuries of male-dominated leadership. And what I came to see pretty quickly was that I actually couldn't separate my grief and what I was doing there with authentically showing up. And yet my, my job was to lead people towards hope and to, to look for how that, you know, the moral arc of the universe is bending towards justice and where we might find good news together. And in some ways that felt so at odds with the, the really dark and desperate place where I so often found myself in those days. And as I, I sort of began sticking my toes in the water a little bit, I, I discovered the more that I showed up authentically, the more I was honest about where I was wrestling, the more it, it seemed to, to work <laughs> what I was trying to do in, in my job. And so the book is a sort of winding road through that process of, of grieving these two beloved people, of trying to discover how to survive that. Uh, there, there were times when I wasn't sure I was going to come through on the other end or what that would look like. And then trying to both lead a community and also parent. So my daughter was two, two and change when our son Fritz died. And, and you know, wrestling, do we do this again? <laughs> we wanted to raise siblings. How? How do we do that? And so, so it's, a, it's a story of what is too much and how we try to rise to that and live through it anyways. And I suppose what, to the second part of your question, why I decided to write the book. So I, I looked it up the other day. I was curious. Brene Brown's book, Daring Greatly, was published about two weeks after my mom died. <laughs> so there was this sort of surge as that got traction. Uh, I found that book. A lot of people found that book. And there started to be more conversation about this intersection between leading and being vulnerable. And it's not something that I saw 
a whole lot of. It's, I, I was not taught to preach vulnerably. <laughs> you know, I was not, you know, we're, we're taught, you know, to be really careful not to use the congregation as your therapist. And I totally support that. And, and the, the other adage that I heard, which I, to a certain extent, agree with, is to preach from your scars, not from your wounds. You know, don't, don't go up there and bleed all over everybody. And that makes a lot of sense to me. And it breaks down when you're in the midst of life and life is happening. And you know, all these people knew that my mom had just died by suicide. They knew that I had just lost our baby totally unexpectedly. And so for me to get up there and unpack our sacred texts or try to point to different ideas leading us forward and, and not bring myself into it just felt, it felt dishonest. And so somewhat to the, the concern of some more traditional folks, I started doing that. I started being just, just real and sometimes raw in what I shared. And not, it wasn't for everybody. You know, not everybody is ready for that. But the folks who needed it, the, the response was really stunning. I remember one day several years ago, someone who's, who's now a friend came to me after hearing one of these and said, okay, so when are you going to write that book? <laughs> and she had been through some, some really tough stuff too, just a terrifying diagnosis and life unraveling and then coming back together on the other side of that. And I couldn't really get away from it. It felt like it needed to come out of me. This is such a powerful story. Mm. How did you maintain your faith in God after everything that happened to you? <laughs> it was really hard, honestly. There were some some pretty bleak days and seasons. I think some of what made a difference for me was that my faith is not a one-on-one kind of thing. It's not just me, Liz, and God, and we go back and forth, and it all depends on on that line. I believe that this happens in community, and that's a way that I have tried to engage it for, well, for as long as I've been part of a faith community. I, I found my way into the church as a teenager when things at home had gone really sideways, and I needed we had briefly plugged in as a family when I was, I don't know, 11 or 12. And then my parents divorced and everything sort of unraveled. And, and I went back when I got my driver's license and found this group of people who were ready to show up and be steady. And I was, I looked rather different than I had in various turns, like a shaved head and bright green hair. And, and they said, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Here, would you like to step up and, and lead this part? Would you, you want to come to this class? Sure. No, you don't have to. It was amazing. And that continued for me, especially in college. There was just an amazing crew of folks and that we chose to be kin together, that, that we could do this work of, of seeking, of wrestling really big questions that don't have answers, of, of trying to discern what to do with our lives, that we could do that in community. And so both when my mom died and when Fritz died, those were the people that showed up physically and also 
finding really creative ways to be with us from across the miles. And they showed up again and again and again, not with platitudes, not with, oh, he's, God needed another angel and blah, blah, blah. Not, not any of that, but just we're with you. We're letting our hearts break with you and we're going to stay alongside. And I think how I ultimately held on to my faith was allowing these other people to have that faith on my behalf when I couldn't. That, that there were times when, long periods of time when I felt like maybe I want to pray or connect or listen, and I have no idea how to even begin to do that. I don't know what those words would be, but I knew that there were other people joining me there who could and would and who were doing that on my behalf. And I think that's ultimately how we can make it forward. We take turns. We don't all have to have it figured out or steady or every day, all the time, but we can carry each other in that. And, and I think that's really what, what carried me through. Wow. It's really, you know, it just, it speaks to the power of community more than, more than really anything. And mm-hmm. that image you just struck up of you're walking through the door and feeling welcomed. I mean, I feel like at its core, that is what we are all looking for, whether it's online or in a church or in, you know, in a recovery group or in any, you know, all of these Weight Watchers, right? People are just longing for connection in any way. And the fact that yours had the perk of having God attached is sort of like... (laughs) Bonus. Yeah, Yeah. bonus, bonus, (laughs) bonus group member there. Well, I think that's beautiful what you just said about being close to people who can maintain the faith when yours wavered. It's just beautiful. I bet those people now that you're not necessarily on the other side, but in a different place and in the depths of despair, must feel so sort of proud of you that they've helped Mm. pull you through. And I bet you'll turn around and if you haven't already, you'll be the one pulling them through whatever life Mm. throws their way, right? Yeah, I I hope they know that. Some of them have, like the the key people who show up in this book have read it. You know, I, I ran it by them. But I wonder that sometimes, you know, people can be so, especially the ones who are especially generous and loving and just just so thoughtful. They're often also the ones who end up being the most humble, I think. And I, I, I wonder sometimes if they know how critical they were, how much of a difference it made. You know, sometimes for me, there were times when I couldn't respond. I could receive it. And that was about as much energy as I had. And so I wonder, you know, sometimes you send things out into the void and you hope maybe it'll make a difference. Maybe it will. You don't know. And I hope they know that. Well, yeah. first of all, you can now play them this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Second of all, you should like set aside, you know, half an hour this afternoon and just like send a few emails and or text, you know, just mm-hmm. tell them because I bet it'll make their day. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, okay, not to give you more work. It's <laughs> <laughs> good work to do. <laughs> yeah, good work to do. There were so many parts of this book that were just beyond beautiful. I also loved the whole tradition you had of folding up the notes and then as the book went on, pulling out the little scraps of paper. Can you just explain that a little more and sure. talk about the power of these little thoughts that your closest women in your life Mm. had to impart over time. Yeah. So Fritz was our second child. We had everything we needed. We did not care about dressing a boy in 
girls' clothes, you know, as a baby, like, whatever. We also, so at this point, we were living at the camp where we were working at Lake Tahoe. It was right on the, the shore of Lake Tahoe. And we were living in a cabin that was, I think, I think it was 340 square feet, including the outside shed thingy that was attached. It was, it was very cozy. And so we also really didn't need more stuff. We did not want a baby shower. But one of our neighbors who lived at the camp there just felt like, you know, ritual matters. We need to mark this. We need to celebrate and welcome this baby. And no, we don't need to give you more things, but we need to do something. And so she gathered the, basically the the women at camp, the women and girls who lived at camp. So it was me and my best friend, Lori, who's the chef there, and her two daughters who, I, I'm not going to get their ages right. They're maybe like seven or nine, seven and nine, something like pretty little still. And my mother-in-law, and and we we gathered in their home. At, you know, the sun was setting over Lake Tahoe, and ate all kinds of wonderful food. And the girls really sloppily painted my fingernails and my toenails. And and then they what they wanted what they decided they wanted to give me was not you know onesies and pacifiers, but their their well wishes and their intentions and their love in the, the form of these little, these little notes. And they were, I don't know, maybe three by two or not even that, like two by one in very small pieces of paper. And they wrote these wishes for me with the intention that I open them while I was in labor with Fritz and that that would give me strength and encouragement. And, you know, I know they were with me and, and all that. And, so they gave me them in this, in this little bottle and Fritz was really late, like really, really late. We tried, oh my goodness, everything. So I walked so many stairs with that, that baby trying to get him out. And finally, I uh, was we in Nevada, the Nevada side of Lake Tahoe, where at least at the time, there was not a whole lot by way of regulations. And so we were planning a home birth. Alice had been born at home with a midwife also. And we came to like the very last day that they, even in Nevada, they would let us do this. So he was 20 days late. And as a last ditch effort, I drank castor oil and the next morning woke up in just roaring labor. And he was nine and a half pounds. It was wild. There was no stopping to read notes at that point. I don't, I don't know if they even crossed my mind. And then, you know, we were in the baby fog, newborn, chasing a toddler, all that. And I don't really remember, but I don't think I really thought about them or noticed them until he died. You know, that, that, so he, he died in, in, at night and getting up the next morning and there's light everywhere and there's no baby. And I just thought, how the hell am I going to do this? How do I even do this first day? And I saw this, this bottle, this little green glass bottle sitting on the shelf next to the, the plates and stuff. And I took it down and pulled a note out and I read it and I'm not going to remember it's, it's, it's in the book, which which came when, but I decided I was going to, I was going to read open one a day until they ran out and it got me through the first week. And then I, I sort of strung thread through them and taped them up in the window. They're like totally bleached out now. You can barely, barely read the words anymore. But it, it was just this, this sort of connective tissue between 
the life that these beloved women and girls had had wished for us and and sent towards us and then unfolding in this entirely different way but but trying to trust that the love they offered to me and this child was was still there so beautiful by the way i think that's a really nice thing to do even for people who have lost someone recently hmm. just to, like maybe this will get you through a week because yeah. you're in that frame of mind that's basically as far as you can even see mm-hmm. and even that feels like insurmountable. So for everybody who's like, what can I do to help somebody who's grieving? What should I say? What should I do? Just putting like seven scraps of paper in a box might just be the most helpful thing you can do. Yeah. It's a start, you know, to to get you. To get you. Yeah. Just, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like the jumper cables on a car, you know, Mm -hmm. that's not going to, it's not going to fix, it's not going to fix the car, but it'll get you to the shop. So Uh yeah, yeah, I love that. (laughs) Yeah. Tell me a little more about writing this book. How long did it take mm. you to write it? When did you find the time to do this? Where <laughs> where did you do it? Like uh-huh. all of it, the process. Oh, geez. So I've been sort of kicking around and, you know, that nagging that doesn't go away. And it was, I think, December 2017. I, I emailed a friend who has written many books and said, Jane, okay, fine. Like I'm ready, but how do I do this? Where do I even start? And we got together and she said, okay, how you start is I I want you, it's the way past the deadline, but I want you to sign up, apply for this writing fellowship anyways, just, just do it. And so it felt totally just sort of fell from the sky gift I was able to join this writing fellowship. It's a, this sort of bizarro artist farm thing up between Palo Alto and the sea, like way up this old ranch converted. And so I went that January in 2018 for five days with, I don't know, maybe 10 other writers and just sort of I worked through all my old journals and made lists and started writing some of it. And then then the, the shape of the program was that month by month, I was supposed to turn in pages and get feedback back, which was so incredibly helpful. If, if writers who are listening, if there's any way to build some kind of accountability in, you know, month by month or, or at whatever interval, that felt just incredibly helpful to, to have to put it out. So I worked for in sort of whatever bits and pockets of time I could find that winter and spring. So at that point, I had, let's see, can I do math? Alice was six. And by that point, we had had another child, Sam, and he was turning three. (laughs) So a seven-year-old and a three-year-old. And I was working full-time. And I remember hearing an author describe her process and her way in was she had this amazing and elaborate ritual to get ready to write. And it, I don't know, I don't know what it involves, you know, a particular food and a way of making tea and some exercise and setting her space. It took like two hours, she told us to get ready. And then at that point, she had invested so much time in getting ready that she was compelled to write. And that worked really well for her. And her book is incredible. It is so gorgeous. And I was sitting there with a couple other moms listening to her describe this. And 
trying so hard to be gracious and supportive because it was beautiful and it was really clever, frankly, how she worked this out. And and I was thinking, oh my goodness, if I had two hours, like I could, if, if I had two hours uninterrupted, I could write so much just in that time. And so, you know, I, I tried various things. I tried make recurring times on my calendar. I, I tried hard to write five days a week. And sometimes that would be for 15 minutes. And sometimes I would get an hour. And sometimes I would get nothing for weeks. And it would be really hard to reset. But coming back to it again and again. And, and then really what, what made it possible was that summer in 2018, I had the gift of a sabbatical. Uh, I'd been in in my new position for, I don't know, four years at that point. And it it was just a gift. So I took, I spent 10 weeks and we traveled to spend time with various people that we love dearly and don't see enough of. And my husband, Jesse, would run with the kids in the morning and I would write in the morning and then we would adventure the rest of the day. And I think especially because I, you know, I had those chunks of three or four hours each morning and was not trying to produce creative work for my job. It was just gold. (laughs) It was such amazing time. And so I was able, when we came back at the end of the sabbatical, I had a first draft. And then after that, it was just totally catch as catch can. There, uh, I took a couple of weeks of vacation to to charge through edits. There were a lot of late nights. This past spring, it was a little over a year ago, I got the book deal and then there were some more rounds of edits. <laughs> and we'd more, like I'd received what I, you know, the sort of tentative schedule of how things were going to be going back and forth. I took a new job around this time last year. And in April, we moved just, just a half hour away, but to a new new house and I think it was actually on our moving day that I received the copy edited manuscript back and the request to turn it around in two weeks. <laughs> and I think I sort of laughed and cried at the same time. So we, had, we were just moving. And of course, you know, in the depths of pandemic, there was no school, no childcare at all. <laughs> I guess I'm not really going to sleep a lot. And, you know, I, I wouldn't recommend that as a sustainable practice. But, you know, once in a while, it, that that's how it happened. You know, that that's you find you the time where you can yeah. and you get it done. Yeah. Two hours uninterrupted for a mom is like <laughs> striking gold. It's amazing. <laughs> anyway, weekend, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Last weekend, I had two hours and I was only interrupted like every seven or eight minutes. And even that right now was, yeah, uh, it was the best. Amazing. Yeah. Do you have any advice to aspiring authors aside mm. from finding two hours of uninterrupted time? Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> even 10 minutes, 10 minutes, you know, take what you can get. I think what, what feels most live for me to, to share or to encourage is to write what, what you can't not write. You know, if, if there is something that, that just you you really feel you have to put down on paper whether or not anyone else ever reads it write that and if you if you understand why it matters it matters and find the people who get it you know, there this probably won't surprise you but there were there are some people who really did not think this book was a very good idea <laughs> that it was just 
way too much sharing or way too sad or I don't know who wants to read about a suicide and a dead baby, right? And that's fine. Uh, they don't need to read it. I'm okay with that. I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's what I thought. You know, I thought, well, I, I think that I think there are people who are. I think most people actually are handed at some point loss or grief or confusion that is just so beyond them. And what do we do with that? Can we talk about that? So I'd say try, try to find the people who understand that and are ready to run with you and bringing it out into the world because they're there and just ignore the people who, who aren't ready for it. That's okay. Amazing. Well, Liz, thank you. Thank you for sharing your painful yet inspiring story of survival through the depths of despair and keeping the faith and just all of it. So thank you for your time and for your beautiful book, which I truly, I mean, I can't say, I I feel bad saying I enjoyed it because it was like, you can, (laughs) I mean, you know what I mean? It was so Mm -hmm. upsetting too, but it was very meaningful to me and memorable. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. All right. Take care. Take care. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thanks so much to today's sponsor, my bookshop.org and my Amazon influencer store. You can check out my Amazon store at amazon.com slash shop slash moms don't have time to read books and my bookshop.org store, which is bookshop.org slash shop slash Zibby Owens. And I hope that you will find every book that you are looking for. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 